Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We may not have an overall recession. We're having a rolling recession. The economy overall looks pretty strong, at least when it comes to jobs. The financial stories that shape our world. Three major regional bank failures sent shockwaves through the banking system. We're all trying to figure out what to make of generative AI. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Welcome now, Dr. Paul Krugman. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Deborah Lair of the Paulson Institute. Glenn Hubbard of the Columbia Business School. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. A Harvard president leaves, a war in the Middle East stays, and Santa takes his rally with him on his sleigh. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers on the U.S. jobs numbers. It's certainly increasingly possible that we'll have that much ballyhooed soft landing as rare as those have been historically. And David Otter of MIT on what to expect from generative AI. Part of that uh, gain, that so-called you know, AI dividend, will actually be uh, squandered on uh, AI defense. Global Wall Street got the new year underway this week with big changes at the top of Harvard. The Harvard Crimson reporting that Claudine Gay will resign today. And keep in mind, she was Harvard's first black president. She just took the post up in July. So this is the shortest tenure in Harvard's history, just six months and two days. While things in the Middle East showed little signs of changing, at least for the better. I think as events unfold, we're likely to see more escalation 
stepped up attacks. And as a result, the market's going to sort of be dragged back to this bullish Middle East risk. And Bob Iger's challenges at Disney stretched into the new year as Nelson Peltz continued to challenge his leadership, even as another activist, Blackwell's, came to his defense. This is going to be a really contentious fight, I think, between Peltz and Disney. He obviously does definitely want to put himself on the board. He definitely wants to see Jay Rizzullo on the board. The Federal Reserve released its minutes from the December meeting showing a cautious approach, with members talking about the possibility of holding for longer than expected, cutting, or even raising rates. I think we do have to you know, pay very careful attention to that tug of war between what markets are seeing in terms of Fed easing and whatnot, uh, and what the macro data are, are suggesting. And then on Friday, U.S. jobs numbers came out stronger than expected, pointing to surprising strength in the economy, only to be countered by ISM numbers 90 minutes later, suggesting some slowing. The markets took all this into account and decided that Santa had, after all, gone back to the North Pole and taken his rally with him. With the S&P 500 down 1.5% for the first week of the new year, ending at 46.97, which is still nicely above the 4,500 number the Bloomberg Elves are predicting for the median at year end. The Nasdaq gave up 3.25%, while the yield on the 10-year decided to peak its head back above 4%, ending the week up over 11 basis points at 4.05. To take us through the start of the year, welcome back now David Bianco. He's DWS, Chief Investment Officer for the Americas. Welcome back. Great to have you. Happy New Happy Year. Happy New Year. It's great to be here for the first Friday. <laughs> so uh, Friday was a bit of a whiplash, at least for me, because we had those jobs numbers come out. The market seemed to know what to do about that. They didn't like it very much. And then the ISM numbers came out. Turn right around. What did we take out of this? Well, the week, first week of the year, and uh, not, a, not a great start. Uh, many investors are calling uh, for us to pay attention to the January indicator. The first several days, first five days of the year, often uh, investors say that's the way the rest of the year will go. Uh, not a great start, but it's just a start to the year. We'll see uh, how things play out. The, the first data, as you said, key data, job market data for December, and the manufacturing and the serviceism. Uh, the way I see it is that the job market is absolutely solid. Another month of more than 200, 216,000 jobs created um, on the establishment survey. Um, and we still see strong wage growth, uh, more than 4% uh, sequentially and year on year. And another interesting thing is that not only did the unemployment rate stay at 3.7%, among the lowest in, in, in many, many decades, we saw something interesting where it looks like nearly 700,000 people who recently entered the labor market decided for whatever reason to exit it. So the participation rate is 62.5%, well above the the lows uh, during the pandemic, but still below uh, the 63% level before the pandemic. It's a full employment economy. We're still creating jobs mostly on the service side of the economy. Manufacturing's still weak, but it's definitely a full employment economy with no slack in my view. Does that give the Fed permission to cut anytime soon? And we came out of last year with a lot of momentum, basically with anticipated cuts, perhaps even early in the new year. Given those jobs numbers and the numbers we're getting right now, does it give the, permi- the Fed any permission to cut at this point? Not yet. Uh, I think the disinflation that we've seen during 2023, and it more needs to occur in 2024, has opened the door to cuts beginning in 2024. We think the first one will be in June and should be no earlier than June. Um, And it, it would just be so odd 
there's no historical precedent since 1960 of the Fed cutting when unemployment's below 4%. The stock market is basically at all-time highs. Um, it, there's, there's no reason for them to rush it. And the more the markets try to rush the Fed to cut, the more I think the Fed should make markets wait. The numbers we're getting indicate that the fourth quarter was probably stronger in growth than a lot of people yeah. were anticipating as a practical matter. What is driving this economy at this point? Because it is stronger than most people anticipated, stronger than most of the rest of the world at this point. Well, the fourth quarter, still yet to, to fully be reported, uh, is slower than the third quarter. And I, we expect the first quarter of, of this year to be even slower. So there is a clear slowdown in the job creation, on the services side, on the consumption side. There is a slowdown, but less slowing than anybody would have thought, in, including us. Um, consumption stays strong. Lifestyle is sticky. People have a powerful, we talk about pent-up savings, but the wealth effect that has come from the stock market and maybe a little bit of confidence that by the spring the housing market um, starts to, to recover in terms of activity, uh, people feel really good about their balance sheets and they have their jobs. Let's talk about the 90s. Uh, 90s. Are we embarking on a time like the 90s? The 90s pretty interesting. Yeah, at the start of 2024, I actually find myself thinking about the 1990s quite a bit. Uh, some are wondering if it's the end of the 1990s. Is it, was 2023 like 1999, and are we going to have a popping of a, of a tech bubble? Um, I don't think so, but there's a risk the equity market has some tough years ahead, given the gains of the past few years. And then if you go all the way back to the early, the start of the 1990s, 1990, uh, there are some issues on the table where inflation, not as bad as we had recently, but inflation was a problem. Greenspan had to do something about it in 94, but also the deficit was a problem in the early 90s. And uh, we have yet to do anything about the deficit. And a lot of people talk about 1995 uh, being a good analogy for this year because of the soft landing. That may be the case. But we have an election this year. We have a deficit to deal with. And we have uh, plenty of geopolitical concerns that are much more adverse than the case in the 90s. Well, if I recall, by 1995, we did have the Carter tax plan that was starting to address some of those fiscal questions. Clinton. Clinton. Yeah, Clinton. yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's right. So uh, Clinton, to his credit, and don't forget, this was a big election issue in, in, in yeah. 1992, uh, the deficit. And uh, in uh, the middle of 1993, Clinton, uh, with Congress, passed uh, tax hikes that took effect in 93 and, and, and played out in 1994 fully. Uh, and they put together a plan uh, to reduce the deficit uh, over the 1990s, as they successfully did, and we went to surplus. And then in 1994, with uh, the midterm elections and the Republicans coming to power, a lot more was done to improve the fiscal situation and, and uh, improve spending. So, so David, let's talk about how you're going to make money the rest of this year. Uh, <laughs> you've already said that you think the, the valuations are robust in big tech. Uh, where are there places you think that maybe they're not quite as robust? Maybe we're missing some things. Well, I do scour over the equity market all the time to find some of the best opportunities. Um, we still are, are, are bullish on big banks. We see the best value at the big banks in the U.S., and they're doing very well the past several weeks as the recession fear uh, has, uh, has, has dissipated. Uh, but I also like big biotech and, and, and pharmaceuticals because there I see strong long-term growth potential that is, is, is at a very on-demanding valuation right now. So 
tech companies, they're great, but the valuations are so demanding that even if these companies do wonderful things, they might not live up to the expectations of investors, particularly over the short term. Uh, and I'm looking for companies where there is that big upside optionality uh, that, that investors are not, not pricing. We see that at, at pharmaceuticals and biotech. Well, what about pharmaceuticals? What, what's going on specifically with pharmaceuticals? I mean, for example, Pfizer's right. had a bit of a struggle recently. Yeah, yeah, Pfizer's definitely had a bit of a struggle. And then on the opposite end, you've got names like Eli Lilly, which are, are going gangbusters, and then, then everything in between. And then the companies are going through, we've known this, a, a transition period from old uh, on-patent drugs to the new pipeline. It takes time. Uh, you never know what, which in the pipeline is, is going to be the hit and when. Uh, like I said, the, the valuations are really on demand. Now, we're going into an election year, and a lot of investors are shy to buy uh, healthcare stocks during an election year. I, I might be a little bit cautious on some managed care and prescription drug benefit managers, but the, the, the innovators in the space, the medicine makers, this is what we need, and I hope the, the, the policy makers allow these companies to, uh, to reach for the stars. Thank you so much. Great to have you with us always. That's David Bianco of DWS. Coming up, we go over those jobs numbers out at the end of the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We're now joined by our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we got those jobs numbers at the end of the week on Friday. They were significantly better than expected, although there were some downward revisions for the prior month. At the same time, ISM numbers came in a little softer. What do you make of these jobs numbers, and particularly perhaps the wage numbers? David, look, I think we're in the same kind of pattern we've been in uh, for uh, some time. As of right now, the economy looks pretty strong and inflation looks relatively under control. But there's a lot going on underneath the surface and there are still substantial uh, risks. I'm sticking with my three scenarios uh, paradigm. Some risk of a downturn. We still keep not seeing it at all in uh, the employment numbers. In the data on GDP, there's this big gap between total income and total output that makes things hard to read. And there's some worrying developments, some of the business surveys like that ISM and in uh, some of the credit uh, data. So. I think it's possible that the economy will go into recession in delayed response to monetary policy. That looks less likely to me than I might have thought some uh, months ago. It's certainly increasingly possible that we'll have that much ballyhooed soft landing as rare as those have been historically. And I think there's a risk that people are still underestimating given the very worrisome fiscal uh, prospect of uh, the country, given the recent easing, quite substantial in financial conditions, given still tight, and the wage numbers, again, are not running right now, today's number not running at a rate that's consistent with the 2% inflation uh, target, given the uncertainties in geopolitics that could point to problems in uh, supply chains. My gut is still that the market is underestimating the inflation uh, risks in the current situation and therefore probably overestimating the amount of Fed cutting that is going to take place. But it's a fairly close call, and the Fed is certainly doing the right thing by being uh, entirely vigilant and signaling that it is very much uh, going to be data dependent uh, going, uh, for going forward uh, right here. I do read the continued strength of the economy in the face of what's happened uh, to rates as suggesting either that the neutral rate has risen substantially or as suggesting that the economy is less sensitive to interest rates than we might have thought. Either one of those considerations would suggest a bit less urgency to rate cutting than uh, many people suppose at uh, the current uh, moment. 
Larry, we had a major development in something that you've talked about in this program more than once, and that is at Harvard, uh, where you were a tenured professor, were pre president there. But more generally at college campuses, we saw the resignation of Claudine Gay uh, from Harvard as president. I, I wonder what you make of it now that we're getting perhaps somewhat past the worst of the conflict. What are the larger lessons we should learn? What can be done in terms of reformation by the universities or otherwise? David, I think... Uh this is a time of testing for universities, certainly unlike any other, certainly since the Vietnam War period and perhaps even going uh, beyond that. Some of our leading universities are under investigation, both from Republicans in uh, the House of Representatives and from the Education Department of uh, the Biden administration. Biden administration. You're seeing a degree of uh, divisiveness on campus that I haven't seen since I first got to the Harvard campus in uh, 1975. So I think there's going to be a very profound challenge of finding a vital center. Universities must stand up to some of the vitriolic forces on the populist right that seem to be in favor of everything up to uh, book burning in support of enforcing some very particular risk vision on universities. At the same time, I don't think there's any question that they have been threatened from within by stifling orthodoxies that have led to the cancellation of speakers, that have led to people being discomfort, uh, discomforted by discussing issues like uh, crime, like uh, education, except in particular prescribed ways. And it's going to be the challenge of university leaders to find a, a way between those twin abhorrent uh, poles. I have to say that this goes way beyond any uh, individual. I think universities have, in many cases, including at Harvard, been failed by their trustees. At Harvard, we call the group uh, the uh, corporation. And in many ways, it is their job, above all, to maintain a healthy interface between the university and the broader society. Larry, if we cast our minds back to November of 2016, there were a lot of concerns about President Trump when it became clear that he was, had been elected. And in fact, you remember the markets really went south very dramatically initially, but then they rebounded. Uh, and if you look basically on the track record of the Trump presidency, just from the point of view of investors as well as the economy, it is not a terrible record, I think it's fair to say. I mean, the markets did reasonably well. There was employment created. There was a GDP growth. So uh, is it possible that we might overreact to the possibility of a Trump 2.0? You know, there's an old saying, fool me once, uh, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. 
That's going to be the way the rest of the world is going to see it. The rest of the world, which has had so much faith in the United States for all their resentments, and so many have been so reliant for so long, were prepared to see a first Trump term as an aberration. But after 91 indictments, after the events of uh, January 6th, that is not how they will see a second term. That is not how they will ever see America again. That will represent a loss of the moral authority that the United States has had since it won the Cold War, since it won uh, the Second World War. And that will, I think, make for a much less stable world. Okay, Larry, thank you very much for all those thoughts. As our special contributor here on Wall Street Week, he is Larry Summers of Harvard. Coming up, 2024 may just be the year when we figure out how big generative AI could be. We'll talk with an economist who's done early, important work on what it could mean for the labor market. David Otter of MIT. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures high yield account. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. The new year will bring with it a presidential election in the United States with potentially very different approaches to the economy weighing in the balance. Here on Wall Street Week, we're going to cover the election by focusing specifically on what it could mean for the economy and for investors. So we asked Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent Michael McKee to start the conversation by laying out what we know at this point about the approaches of the two frontrunners, President Biden and former President Trump. It's been 32 years since political strategist James Carville hammered home the idea that when it comes to presidential elections, it's the economy, stupid. But in 2024, is it? Entering this election year, compared with election years past, the economy is growing by around 4%, the most since 2003. With one exception, unemployment is the lowest it's been entering an election year since 1968, when a lot of men were employed by the U.S. Army in Vietnam. The exception was 2020, when COVID doubled the jobless rate between January and Election Day in November. Inflation is higher than any year since 2007, but it's been cut in half over the last 12 months and should be close to the election year average by November. By the Carville yardstick, it's somewhat surprising that President Joe Biden isn't far ahead in the polls. It may be that voters haven't shaken off the COVID pandemic yet. They're comparing the economy of the past three years to where it was under Donald Trump in 2019. And they're not focused on what Trump is promising draconian changes. He wants across-the-board tariff increases, which would raise prices for just about everything, threatening inflation. Remember, when the U.S. raises tariffs, Americans, not foreigners, pay the difference. Trump is talking about massive deportation of illegal aliens, which would hit the labor market hard. Unemployment, particularly in lower-wage service sectors, would rise. He would renew and expand tax cuts expiring in 2025, increasing the deficit. The good news for President Biden is the economic outlook remains bright. If inflation keeps falling, interest rates are expected to follow, and that would stimulate faster growth and higher stock prices. The Biden camp is betting people will notice. The bad news is this year it may not be the economy, stupid, and Wall Street may not care. The S&P 500 rose 24% under Biden last year, but it rose 29% under Trump in 2019. So this election may turn not on pocketbook issues, but personalities. Not that personalities are all bad. The 1992 election brought Larry Summers into government. David? Generative artificial intelligence was one of the hottest topics for investors in 2023 and looks to be the same in 2024. There's much we don't know about what it could ultimately mean, including about the effect on productivity and growth in the labor market. David Otter, he is MIT professor of economics, has done some of the earliest seminal work on this subject. And we welcome now to Wall Street Week. So, Professor, thanks so much for being with us. As I say, it's really early going and we don't know a lot. But what do we think we might know about productivity and growth? Because that's what investors seem to be most interested in. Thanks very much for inviting me. Uh, what you said is correct. We don't know very much about the productivity consequences. Uh, it's easy to project uh, enormous potential gains, but we would have made the same projection about the computer era of the last 40 years. And in fact, growth has been relatively disappointing, especially for the last 15 years. So I think there's enormous upside potential, but sometimes that potential doesn't turn into reality. And uh, you know, we will spend some of the productivity of AI uh, dealing with the problems that AI creates, including a hallucination, including vulnerabilities 
cyber attacks. Uh, and so a part of that uh, gain, that so-called you know, AI dividend, will actually be uh, squandered on uh, AI defense. Talking about productivity and growth, I'm sort of talking about whether the pie gets bigger overall. What about how we divide up the pie, that is distributionally, particularly in the labor market? Because you've done some work there based on past history, but what we think might happen with jobs. Who gets better jobs? Who gets worse jobs? So the period we're concluding now, the, the computer era, the traditional computer era, has been one of rising inequality. And we think that computing has had a lot to do with that because it's been very complementary to decision makers, uh, you know, to lawyers and doctors and marketers and people who basically use information and analysis to make high stakes one-off decisions. It's displaced a lot of workers from production work, from office work, and sort of pushed them down into less expert jobs in food service, cleaning, security, entertainment, recreation. And those are socially, that's socially valuable work, but it's paid poorly because it doesn't require specialized expertise. And so computing, uh, as we understand it, has actually uh, not been that great for growth and really uh, created a lot of inequality. I think AI has the potential to work quite, quite differently. As you talk, it sounds to me there's another distributional potential effect here. People, for example, receiving medical care, which is far from equally divided in this country and goodness knows around the world. Is there potential that more people will have access to better health care in the United States and around the world? It's a great question. So I do think there's a lot of super expensive services uh, that are expensive specifically because they're provided by highly paid experts. So that would be in education, that would be in healthcare, that would be in architecture and design, that would be in software development. And AI could make those things uh, more accessible. Um, I think that's going to have, uh, that has potentially enormous benefits, both in uh, rich industrialized countries like the United States and, and potentially even more so in the developing world where that type of expertise is even more scarce. Um, how we do that, of course, depends a lot on our institutions, right? So the good scenario is uh, the price of medical care comes down, it becomes more broadly available, that we you know, allocate it more efficiently. The bad scenario is basically if you're wealthy, you see a highly paid doctor, and if you're not wealthy, you see a machine. <laughs> so we shouldn't uh, count on the technology to solve our problems for us. It opens possibilities. But how we use them is really a societal choice. And just to give you a very stark example of this, you know, in the 1940s, uh, scientists figured out how to uh, harness controlled nuclear fission. That has two really powerful uses. Uh, one is for energy generation and the other is for uh, nuclear weapons. Um, North Korea is a country that has lots and lots of offensive nuclear weapons, but no nuclear power plants. Japan, the only country against which offensive nuclear weapons has ever been used, has no nuclear weapons and dozens of nuclear power plants. So AI is a bit like nuclear energy, but in some ways more powerful and certainly more applicable. We can use it for really good things and for really destructive things, and already both of those are occurring. And finally, Professor, let's come back to where we started, the uncertainty about AI right now, because one of the things I've learned from you and from others is this is not just a matter of degree, but perhaps of kind. That is to say, basically with automation, we people who are really expert in this know how it works. They know what the rules are that the computers are following. AI, generative AI, as I understand, we literally don't know how it works and never will know how it works. It doesn't know how it works itself. What does that say about our ability to predict where it's going and how to manage it? So your point is an excellent one. Just to, to slightly clarify, 
we understand or you know computer scientists understand mathematically what it's doing but in any given instance it's it's like a child it's it's learned some lessons uh what it'll actually you know it's read some things it's encountered some things what it'll actually do on any given occasion is is extremely hard to predict you'd have to know everything it's ever been exposed to um so that makes it um, actually a lot like human experts in some ways, uh, because we're ourselves unpredictable in the sense. But it means that when we interact with AI, we need to learn how to treat it not as authoritative, but as a guide or support to decision making. And uh, that's really critical. Uh, Professor, does that necessarily lead to regulation? That is to say, the government uh, telling us when we should and shouldn't use AI because we don't want to use it the wrong way? I think it leads to a couple of types of regulation. One of them is safety regulation, but we're actually pretty good at that. You can't buy our toaster oven that doesn't meet energy standards and uh, fire proofness standards. And so when we're using AI in specific applications like in uh, aircraft or in medicine or in cars, the government should and I think will regulate that. And so absolutely. But there's two other forms of regulation that I think are much harder. One is AI, you know, desperately, uh, you know, chips away, or, or let me say, let me put it differently, AI uh, really threatens the foundation of our intellectual property system, or our copyright laws. They just weren't built in anticipation of machines that would absorb and then memorize and not exactly reproduce, but pretty much replicate what's already there. So that's an issue. And I really think uh, there's a real threat to, uh, you know, to newspapers, to, to illustrators, to artists, to actors uh, that needs to be negotiated and set properly in law and bargaining. And we've already seen the Screenwriters Guild do that, the Actors Guild do that, but that's only the very beginning. Professor, thank you so much for joining us on Wall Street Week. Really appreciate it. That's David Otter of MIT. Coming up, why pay for the cow when you can get the milk for free? Just ask Michigan coach Jim Harbaugh. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Finally, one more thought. They say you get what you pay for. According to Wikipedia, it's an expression of the so-called common law of business balance, though no one seems to know exactly where it came from. One follower of this supposed rule of business balance is Warren Buffett, at least after his partner Charlie Munger persuaded him it was better to pay a fair price for a great company than to pay a great price for just a fair company. And as Messrs. Buffett and Munger proved, paying up for great assets and talent most of the time is the way to go. Like for those who stepped up in 2023 and paid full price for big tech stocks when others were insisting they were overvalued. As we know, in the end, the Magnificent Seven proved to be worth every penny, at least in 2023. I think a lot of these names have a lot of growth in them over the long term. However, you know, in the short term, profit taking happens. Uh, it's good to lock in some of those great returns that we saw in 2023. And one of the big tech companies that certainly got what it paid for was Microsoft, with its $13 billion investment in OpenAI, which, despite a bit of trouble along the way, is now valued at something like $100 billion. We continue to be committed to OpenAI and we continue to be co committed to Sam and Greg and the team, irrespective of where they are. Hollywood writers did their best last year to show us all that if we want their best creative output, the studios will have to pay full value. And in the end, they made their point. This deal is the very best deal that could be negotiated at this time, even with the use of all the leverage that we generated from having a strike for 118 days. 
And while we were in Hollywood, Warner Brothers didn't scrimp when it put together the Barbie movie, as the budget ballooned to $145 million, and it certainly got what it paid for, and then some, with global box office receipts somewhere north of $1.4 billion. Of course, paying top dollar doesn't always guarantee you'll make money on the deal. Just ask Elon Musk, who paid $44 billion for Twitter, renamed it X, and now admits it's worth about half that, while others think he may be optimistic. We've just seen a huge erasure of, of value from X since Elon took over. And at this point, it's far from certain whether Steve Cohen will get his money's worth from the Mets. What with the $2.4 billion price tag, the hundreds of millions he's committed to the largest payroll in Major League Baseball, and his plan to put another $8 billion into developing 50 acres around City Field. Now it's the Los Angeles Dodgers' turn to hope their new star pitcher, Shohei Otani, will be worth the record $700 million they've promised to pay him. Which takes us to the one place left, at least in sports, where you can have a multi-billion dollar business and effectively not pay at all for those doing the real work. College football, where players give their all throughout the fall every Saturday, risking life and limb for exactly zero pay. Something that Michigan coach Jim Harbaugh says has to change. What I don't understand is how the NCAA, television networks, conferences, universities, and coaches can continue to pull in millions, and in some cases, billions of dollars in revenue off the efforts of college student-athletes across the country without providing enough opportunity to share in the ever-increasing revenues. Now let's see whether Harbaugh's players win that national championship on Monday, even without pay. Go Blue! That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. See you next week. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions. July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.